0: This is just for you, Paul. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strand on The Coot Street Podcast! And we're
1: back to form. None of this Edward R. Murrow calling from London stuff now. We're just actually talking like the tacky folks we are.
0: <laughs> oh, look, there's something to be said for you know, being traditional and stuff, and that's sort of traditional. Because we moved past the Good Morning Gary thing, and then we moved into this, and we haven't found, worked out the new tradition yet for what might be a third generation of the Good Street Podcast. I wonder how many. Uh, so, so the Good Morning, are we have we only had those two openings.
1: Good yes. Morning Gary, Good Evening Jonathan, and then we had live from Motel Six. Okay, pretty maybe sure. Maybe for 2013, we should think of a new opening.
0: Ah, okay. Could it have music? No. Oh. Well, maybe. We could get John Anilio to write us a song. He'd write us a song, I bet. He would? Okay. John Anilio, so- if you listen to this podcast, write us a song. It should probably have rambling in it.
1: Probably should have rambling
0: in it, too. And so- Sophie asked me today, uh, yesterday if she could design a Girls Crude Street podcast t-shirt. And I said, sure. I think that's a wonderful idea. I said, I said so, too. I said we could get some made and she could wear them when we're in Brighton next year.
1: I could probably unload a
0: couple here in the States. There you go. See? Brilliant. We're talking about
1: We're talking about young girls.
0: We are. We are talking about teenagers. Yes. Yes, I would Early think. So I can yeah. Well, I think think so, so Sophie's intrigued by her graphic design possibilities. So I think that could be fun. We could let her do that. I think we should. I will encourage her, I will follow her up.
1: And so, then she can uh, she can appear on the podcast to promote her new product line. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. become famously yes. commercial with this. We are going to just sell out. We are going to be podcast product placement whores. Yeah, we're not
1: doing well with the Coot Street um,
0: mugs or the Coot Street thumb well, well, drive. <laughs> with, we have Coot T-shirts, TV but we've never actually the in them, have we? we no. You, in fact... There's only one person on earth who actually owns a Code Street t-shirt, isn't there? Who owns it? Me. I have Code Street t-shirts. No, Paul Cornell bought one. Paul Cornell bought Your one. The the podcast. I thought somebody else bought Folks, get on the
1: ball. Buy Code Street t-shirts. We have seven left.
0: <laughs> or at least admit that you meant to you know, go, go to the blog and, at jonathanstrand.com.au and just block, you know, comment on this the post for this episode of the podcast episode probably 125 and tell us that you intended to buy a t-shirt it'll be almost as good as having bought one and it'll get rid of the uh, out, outstanding stock
1: we have have you ever run into somebody okay there're two things that happened to me and I don't know what the word for this is yeah but it's somebody who You'll recognize the situation. I was at a convention sometime, and some aspiring writer who had been aspiring for a number of years, I gathered, um, wanted to exchange cards. And this was before we had our Coot Street business cards. Mm -hmm. And he handed me his card, and I said, Oh, okay. And I started to put it in my pocket. And he said, "Um, I need that one back. (laughs) And then during the judging of the World Fantasy Awards, uh, this came uh, with a. not with the return mail stamps but with a return mail envelope saying if you decide not to give me the world fantasy award could you return this because i only have a few copies
0: <laughs> I thought, oh Ah! Oh, you can only keep the book if if i win the award that's like yeah. extortion isn't it gary it really is i mean probably well, I think, thought, no 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 it's, it's extortion if it's a good book it wasn't. <laughs> you just offended someone, and I don't know who it was, but they do, and you do? Um, I
1: don't. I have a feeling that the person who wrote this novel and submitted it not only does not listen to the Pood Street podcast, or the Pood Street podcast, as I say every once in a while, but probably never listens to any podcast having to do with science fiction or fantasy, or reads anything having to do with
0: it. Is this about science fiction or fantasy, Gary?
1: <laughs> well...
0: Yes, it is. Not but yet. Not
1: yet. <laughs> not yet.
0: Now we're talking about about those people who only have one business card left and are trying to get the rest of their lives out of it. <laughs> well, I'm sure there is a onlinebusinesscards.com that can help them out for a minimal <laughs> fee.
1: You, 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 I, I get these emails:
0: business cards, 3.95 for ten thousand. You'd think they could scrape up the 3.95. <laughs> My problem wouldn't be the 395, it would be what to do with 10,000 bloody business cards. Which is kind of my problem with our Coot Street business cards right now. We got like, what, 300 or 500 or something? And I've still got got like 290 or 390 or something of them. I don't even remember to carry them around to give away to you. (laughs) I don't think I
1: handed out more than two or three at the last World Fantasy Convention Did you?
0: I took a copy. I gave, probably handed out two or three, but it wouldn't be much more than that. Uh, and then, of course, I realized I made some kind of stupid mistake on mine. I didn't put all the right all the information on there because they look really great. Amanda Rainey, who designed the cards for us, did a what lovely sorry. job, right? But see, there's my, my cards. <laughs> they don't have an address on them, Gary. I mean, yes, they've got a phone number you know, and a mobile and an email address and a web address, but they don't have an actual mailing address. Physical address, that's yeah, true. Probably should have put a physical address on the card. That was an, uh, a, a failing of mine not to pick it up, not Amanda's, because she was doing a very classy job. So, you know. But they'll well, be. The, good less information, in. the less information on a card, the more important you are. <laughs> I have a question, Gary. Yes. Now, yes. It to me. Because we have all these podcast related business cards left, mm-hmm. does that mean that we can't stop doing the podcast until we run out of cards? I'm afraid
1: so. Ah, oh, crap. Yeah, I'm afraid so. I mean, there there there, there is a business card code of ethics. That uh, as
0: long as your business is function, as long as your
1: business cards have not run out, your business must continue to function.
0: See, as you pour your glass of red wine, um, see what that says to me is then we have an obligation to try, to to at least give out one podcast-related business card per podcast. Otherwise, we're going to be here for twenty years, Gary. Um, that's
1: well. Twenty years would be, at my age, not a bad
0: deal. <laughs> what you want to go and make that deal with the devil at the crossroads? That, that that you can't actually sort of take my soul until such times as I've gone through all of my my, my cards.
1: It seems like, to me that there's a story in there, probably by John Collier or somebody.
0: <laughs> Could but, I just uh, suggest though that before you sort of make that deal based on the 500 cards we have printed, you might go and get one of those 3.95 for ten thousand deals. That's a good idea, too. So, you know. Anyway, this is what so i yep. I have an idea. I have an idea. Do you have an idea? I have an idea. What's your idea? My idea, which occurred to me this very
1: moment, is are people still writing Deal with the Devil stories? I'm sure they are. Of I believe didn't,
0: whole, uh, didn't Tim Pratt... See, we're talking over each other. We've even got yeah. video going in the background. People were still talking over each other. Yes, Tim Pratt did a Deal with the Devil anthology just a few years ago for Nightshade. Yeah, I don't remember what the name of it was. Sorry, Tim, Uh, but but it was indeed a deal with the Devil anthology, and he did do it, and I'm sure it was spectacularly good. Okay, we can come back to that later because it has to
1: do with an idea in the back of my mind. But you had an idea more or less in the forefront of your mind. I have an about- idea
0: in the forefront of my mind. And it actually gels with an idea that you proposed because, you know, that's that whole simpatico thing that we have going after 125 podcasts. Um, here, here's it is. It's Paul McCauley of this parish mm-hmm. wrote a blog post on November the 13th, which isn't that long ago. We could pretend it's still current. Called wait wait, November the
1: thirteenth of last year.
0: No, this year, dude. November the thirteenth. Oh, that's all. That's right. That's, like that's two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Earth to Gary. Um. Okay. anyway. He wrote this, this. This. Um. This blog post, uh, entitled "Let's Put the Future Behind Us." And, the subject of the podcast was a list of the top ten hard science fiction novels that have stood the test of time that was published on the Science Fiction Writers of America website by Mike Brotherton. Now, just very quickly, and you'll spot the obvious problem with this list, I think, as I go along, and Brotherton addresses it when he writes the list, and Macaulay discusses it. These 10 science fiction hard SF novels that have stood the test of time are Mission of Gravity by Hal Clement, Fountains of Paradise by Arthur Clarke, Ringworld by Larry Niven, Dragon's Egg by Robert L. Forward, they left off the L, Timescape by Gregory Benford The Black Cloud by Fred Hoyle which between you and I I never read sorry Tau Zero by Paul Anderson The Moon is a Harsh Mistress by Robert A. Heinlein Contact by Carl Sagan I don't think he needed to specify astronomer Carl Sagan because who knows another one and The Forever Reward by Joe Haldeman Right. uh, 10 terrific books now the obvious flaw is all by men they're all by men They're all by men. They're all by white Anglo-Saxon men, which Mm. is very male. However, Paul, whilst acknowledging that that is a a problem with the list as well, points out something else. And it ties in with, with other things happening at the time, and it's why I'm thinking it's useful. What he said is, the list isn't a bad list, but like too many lists of its kind, and science fiction and f- fans and writers love to produce lists, it was, was produced by looking backwards, not forwards, by framing the selective criteria to include a bunch of usual suspects and to exclude anything even remotely recent. So here's the question. At a time when our dear friends and collaborators at Locus, Mark Kelly and Liza Trombi, are have just, in fact, should have just closed voting on their 20th and 21st century all-time ballot, mm should we be doing these things is it a good idea to be producing retrospective backward-looking lists or should we be focusing on the present and the future
1: well in the first place you can't obviously produce a list of the 10 currently in print published within the last year hard science fiction novels that have stood the test of time the test of time is the question there the question is how many of these things are still readable are they still uh, workable and are they relevant? I guess that's the real question. Do they really have anything to do
0: with the way people are writing science fiction today? I think that is a question, but I, th- I really think the question that Macaulay's are raising is this. If we Are we spending too much of our time? Are we occupying too much of the dialogue of, of the field, critically, socially, whatever else at the moment, talking about echoes of the past, memories of yesterday, rather than identifying the current work that is really Meritorious, and that seems to be moving the field forward. You know, uh, there's not a lot of. T- I mean, he said, what How come that you didn't do a, 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 mind, a list of mind-blowing hard science fiction novels of the 21st century?" Now, I realize that the hmm. locust list is actually doing some of that, so that's that's to be applauded. And he mentions yeah. things like Greg egan schild's Ladder* and Justina Robinson's *Natural History* and Mike Harrison's *Light*, trisha Sullivan's *Mall*. He, he's you know he's, he's modest, so he doesn't mention his own *The Quiet War* right. whatever else. Um, And I think there's some kind of merit in this, because when we talk about the evolutionary history of science fiction, we do keep focusing and taking our assessment of excellence from works that were published 30, 40 years ago. Not inherently Mm -hmm. wrong, not uncommon around the world to do, but maybe a bit too limiting?
1: It's limiting, and it's a
0: different set of questions,
1: really, I think. And it's not unlike... Um, Jonathan McCallum's latest post, which looked at the history of science fiction, looked at Heinlein as viewed by Gary Westfall. Yes. There is a sense that science fiction tends to look to models from the past that in some cases are irrelevant or inferior in terms of modern practice. I mean, Mission yes. of Gravity is the number one book on that list. Yes. And Mission of Gravity is a terrific concept. It's not a very good novel. I mean, Hal Clement essentially created wonderful – and Robert Forward is in the same category. It is. Created wonderfully imaginative
0: settings and then all pulp stories within them. Ah, yes. But then this ties across to Jonathan McElmont's post, the one you're talking about, at RuthlessCulture.com, annoyed with the history of science fiction. Exactly what I was saying, yeah. Which which is a great post, really, really clever post in many ways, I think, um, where he talks about whether we have developed – an assessment of the of criteria so that, that we can use to assess and discuss science fiction—a language for it. Uh, and the example he uses, quite interestingly, I think, is the concept of the info dump and how it's seen. How info dumps are seen as being a problem in right. mainstream fiction, but actually are a tool in science fiction. You know, there's a lot of talk, see, the, he- the Heinlein School of Writing is you get rid of, uh, as McElmont points out, it's uh, all about getting rid of the infodump, about internalizing it into the, te- into the text. Right. And then you get a writer like, well, going back in time, there's you know, Brunner and uh, Stevenson, most recently Stan Robinson in 2312. Stan
1: Robinson has written eloquent defences of the infodump yeah. as an aspect of literary, of narrative art.
0: And that's it. You see that? So, that's interesting in and of itself, and doesn't really time for my first point too much, I guess. But anyway... Um, it's interesting because if we're going to keep casting back to a standard of excellence that applied to works, pu- works published in the 40s and 50s, we're not going to evolve new criteria for assessing excellence in the 21st century. And if we're going to evolve, see science fiction evolve, if we're going to see science fiction commentary and criticism, and I don't count myself as a critic, but mm-hmm. if we we're going to see science fiction commentary and criticism evolve. Then surely we have to be willing to push those th- these things. Look for new evolutionary concepts. Look for different ways of talking about what we're doing in a meaningful way. I'm I'm quite attracted to to Jonathan's view that that the historical evolutionary argument about science fiction is is to, to some extent still unproven, insufficiently discussed, and maybe not a helpful way of um, considering science fiction today. I think it's a, it's a very
1: valid point that he makes. and If it happens, I, I'm not sure that it happens that much in in what I would consider serious criticism or reviewing. If a Greg Egan novel comes out, I don't see very many people saying, well, this fails the Heinlein test because it doesn't look like a Heinlein novel.
0: No, but they're going What's... to say that it sounds a bit like Hal Clement, or they're going to pick out you – know, they'll, they'll, they'll reference – I would bet you that they'll reference Olaf Stapleton, right? hmm But what they won't do is tell you why. It's it's like, I mean, the the, the assertion that I think kicked off part of Jonathan's commentary was Gary Westphal's essay on Locus Online about how people have miscategorized the phases of Robert A. Heinlein's writing career. Right. And he talks about sweepingly, apparently, well, he talks sweepingly about uh, the influence Heinlein's had in the field. And it's taken as being a given. And almost anybody would probably agree. But what are the characteristics that you look for to assess the fact that that is the case? I mean, I would say to you, and she would say to you, that Connie Willis's work is profoundly influenced by Robert A. Heinlein, right? And she will say that, yes. That's right. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But that that's that's a nice observational statement, but it doesn't explain what it is that that is the evidence for that uh, that influence in the work. When you read Doomsday Book, what is the echo of Heinlein? When Mm -hmm. you read uh, Lois Bujold's Falling Free, or whatever it is, what is the Echo of Heinlein? Who are the people who are actually influenced, and how can you say, well, they use this writing technique, they use this way of looking at the world, they use this discussion of that? And I, I, I do believe... At least on a on a proven level, but just emo- you know, the way I feel about it emotionally, that Heinlein, yes, profoundly influential. But I'm not sure that I've seen anybody really say, well, here are the six or seven elements, or the two or three elements, or the major change that we can we can attribute to Heinlein having written. Now we can sit and apply that as a litmus test to the works of A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and see that that uh, influence follow you know, f- follow through the you know the the, the evolution of the field say
1: i don't yeah I, I i understand what you're saying and i can uh, i think that author by author you can do that to go back and and trace heinlein's influence in in writers from connie willis to greg egan is a rather pointless exercise if you're talking about heinlein if you're talking about connie willis you mentioned the doomsday book for example yeah. to me it seems very clear that the 21st century oxford university setting the time travel setting the laboratory setting is very heinleinian there's no explanation there's no info dump this is the world we live in. This is how we do it, and um, all the all the science fictional apparatus is presented in the future segments in a very Heinleinian mold. Now, when when we're back in the Middle Ages, as we are for something like four or fifths of the novel, uh, I don't think the Heinlein influence is that strong. But from Connie's point of view, Heinlein's way of writing about the future probably enabled her to write the the near future um, time travel yep. business without having to
0: justify it much. Well, it's like, I remember reading a story, and I'm trying to remember the title of it. Uh, Mike Resnick edited an anthology for ISFIC Press, called Space Cadets, Mm. I think. And quite surprisingly, Mm. Connie wrote a story for it, maybe called DT, or something like that. Uh, Oh, I do remember something like that. And that is a classic Heinlein story, to me, if you go read it. It's a young girl, Heinlein had many young female characters. It's a uh, space Academy, a girl, want, uh, the young person wanting to learn to do better. It reads just like Heinlein in many ways. So, I, but if you said to me, "Can you give me the eight the eight elements?" I'm not sure I could.
1: So, well, I think the the other thing about
0: science fiction
1: history is that essentially, if you start, even if you start with HG Walls, and most people think. Uh, most people don't really think in terms of Mary Shelley. Most people think in terms of the early 20th century. this The history of science fiction literature as an interactive discussion among a group of writers is less than a century old. Yep. That's not really a long enough arc to get a sense of who the long term influences are. I mean, by and large, when you look at literary discussions of the English novel today, you don't find people saying, well, um, to use, I don't know, um, uh, Hilary Mantel as an example. Uh, does she look enough like George Eliot? In other words, that kind of thing doesn't happen in general criticism. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a model of the novel, which was established in the late Victorian era, which became essentially a kind of default model for most 20th century fiction. Then you had a lot of reactions against it from Faulkner and Virginia Woolf and James Joyce and so forth and so on. Even those things are over a, a century old now. Yeah. Uh, so we don't really have that kind of a sense of the basis of, of history in science fiction. And so I think we default to Heinlein yeah. because we can't, we can't really default to Vernon Wells because I don't think anybody is writing in any serious way in response to Vernon Wells anymore.
0: If I, If I were convinced by that, and I'm not saying that I'm not, but if I were, surely hmm. we're about a week and a half away from being able to talk about the influence of Doc Smith then.
1: I think the influence of Doc Smith is worth talking about. Absolutely, if there's a if if there's evidence of it. Um, but influence, I guess, is is a very difficult term to use. And I've I've thought about this off and on, and I've thought about writing essays about it. Um, influence in the sense of I want to write like that. I don't think anyone in their right mind has ever been influenced by Doc Smith. Yeah. Influence in the sense that oh, I can do that. I can write galaxy-spanning, planet-busting adventures. There's no doubt that Edmund Hamilton was was influenced by by Doc Smith. Who was influenced by Edmund Hamilton? I don't know, but the whole notion of liberation, in other words, there's influence in the sense that I want to imitate that writer. There's influence in the sense that that writer gave me permission to do this. Yeah. In in the the latter sense, um, Cordwainer Smith is an enormously influential writer. How so? I know very few people that try to try to um, write Cordwainer Smith-type stories, but Cordwainer Smith essentially said to succeeding generations of science fiction writers: If you want to create a spaceship that looks like the Mount Vernon estate of George Washington in 1790, you can do that. In other words, you can imagine, uh, you, you, you can write stories about cats and dragons and so forth and so on, and and sort of backform the science fictional rationale for it. I think a lot of writers felt, oh, I can do that now. Uh, So so there's a sense Gene Wolfe has liberated uh, Jack Vance. I actually should should give credit to Jack Vance. Jack Vance basically said to Gene Wolfe and a generation of other writers, you can set a story so far in the future that it will read like fantasy and it may or may not be fantasy. But you have the freedom to keep that question open. Okay.
0: So if... We're unconvinced that the influence school of discussion, of which we have both, and certainly I have been a part of, is perhaps not useful, then what is a more useful way of discussing the field around us? Well, like I said, the,
1: um, the, the, the term influence, I think, has multiple meanings. Mm-hmm. And influence in the sense that, um, oh, I, I've read Heinlein and I want to write like Heinlein. I mean, I think that generation of writers essentially has passed. Yeah. I think, I, I, and I think the what you begin to see, if, you, if you're interested in the literary history of science fiction, is you begin to see a dialogue. You begin to see critiques of Heinlein. One of the books on the list that you mentioned was Joe Haldeman's The Forever War, yep. which is both a tribute to and a critique of Heinlein's ideology. Yep. And I, prefer, I think The Forever War is one of the classic hard SF novels, and I think it redefined the base from starship troopers um do you so use, s- yeah sorry continue going on and you and i and, and charles used to love to talk about the dialogue mm-hmm. um, and i think what you're saying is the dialogue is no longer between everybody and heinlein but maybe there's an element of the dialogue that's between paul mcaaulie and al reynolds or between greg egan and paul Macaulay, or-
0: Well, well i think it's reasonable to say that any dialogue that's happening today is, bo- is between both writers who are working currently um, and at most the stuff that they had read earlier in their, you know, in, in, yeah, in their youth kind of thing. So Paul McCauley, I would not be surprised, is reading Al Reynolds and Hannah Ryan-Yemi and Greg Egan and Justina Robson and whoever else, and that that informs what he does as, as much or at least partially as much as uh, modern science does. But there's also his own context and science in, in the field. But I get the feeling reading what he's doing, you know, reading what he's saying, that a guy who helped write the radical hard SF manifesto in Interzone, which I believe Macaulay was part of doing,, yeah. is not going to be comfortable with a traditional static art discussion of the field today what he's looking for is things that are going to actually engage modern science, the world as as we live in today, and push hard against what science fiction can do in, you know, 2012 or 2013. I think that's what he's part of. I feel, even though there are traditional forms to the Quiet War books, that that's what those books try to do. And I guess there's a question as well, which is, we're sort of going around as we try and feel this out in conversation, is... um, is there an adequate con- attempt to contextualize in discussion the work of the 21st century yet? I mean, I'm not saying it's easy to do, but is there enough of it? I mean, we 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 get pa- you know passing reviews. You know, we sit there, we review the new Paolo right. Bacigalupi book, we re- review the new uh, Kathleen Angunen book, whatever else. The reviews fly by quickly because they appear online or they appear in monthly periodicals like www.locusmag.com. Um, mm. You like that? Uh, but not many people actually take it t- take it t- 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 the time to stand and go, well, okay, these were the interesting books of, say, 2000 to 2010, which I think might be the cutoff for the 21st century stuff on Locus Online, I, I think. I believe so. Yeah, 20- yeah 2001, to 2010. Uh, what do they say to each other? What were people talking about during this period of time? Uh, is the... Is the argument advanced by the other friend of this podcast, Mr. Paul Kincaid, in his famous Widening Geier article, that science fiction is run, is to some degree running out of ideas at the moment, or has mined its has has, has you know, mind its its vein of, of 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 conceptual development out at the moment? Is that being looked at and tested? Are people going around and reading? The various people who are doing interesting work, you know, the Lauren Bukes and the Karen Tidbecks and um, Mm -hmm. whoever else it might be, not to just go around and play a name check game. But, you know, and are are they doing this analysis? And it's it's not saying it's easy, but are people doing it enough?
1: I don't know. I don't don't think the discussion is quite there yet. I Mm -hmm. think the discussion is still a backward looking discussion. I think Jonathan McElmott is absolutely correct. We tend to look at the past for models and not just at the past. We tend to look at the past of 50 years ago. Uh, which is probably where Heinlein comes in, uh, and I think there—I I don't think there's a single dialogue that goes on in science fiction. I think one of the things that Paul Macaulay is interested in as a biologist is the intersection between science and, and science fiction. I think there's an interest in that because yep. there's another camp—there's a camp that wants to use that, that wants to use science fiction for its metaphorical value. Um, how do you keep both things uh, in, in balance to some extent? There's the question of whether science fiction has used up certain concepts. I don't know if that's true. One of the things that's fascinated me in the last um, few months because I've been noticing it, are that some some ideas I think do get retired by science fiction or get passed off yeah. by science fiction. Right now we're reconsidering, clearly science fiction is reconsidering the notion of interstellar travel. Yes. Uh, because of, um, A few years ago there's a novel I'm reading right now by a, a, a new writer who's a major, who's becoming a major writer, was a major writer with a British novel. Which deals, it's, it's Karen Lord's mm-hmm. novel, deals a lot with um, psionics, deals a lot with telepathy and that sort of thing, um, which seemed to me, and she, uh, without getting into details as to how she handles it, an interesting concept because Philip K. Dick used it quite a bit. But other than that, it was mostly a 50s science fiction concept, which seems to have been passed along. It seems to have gone. We don't, don't have a lot of telepathy stories these days.
0: You see it in fantasy more, I think. Well, um, you know, I think I think Nina Hoffman has written about it somewhat. Nina Hoffman has written about it somewhat, and Stephen King has
1: written about it all the time. And from where started to the Stand, there's telepathy, there's telekinesis. It's become a, a staple of horror fiction, but it's most. And mostly I might, might a, be
0: misremembering, but didn't Octavia Butler write about it?
1: Um, back in the seventies, yeah, I yeah. believe. Um, but Octavia Butler also. Wrote a time travel story in which there was no science fictional rationale whatsoever for time travel. Kindred, which is arguably one of the classic time travel stories, is not even by her own account a science fiction story. Yeah. And you've got bestsellers like Audrey Niffenegger's *The Time sure. Travelers*. Nothing science fictional about that. Uh, the new Ten Powers* novella, in, in which a contemporary bookseller travels back to San Francisco in the 1950s. Um, Nothing science-fictional about the... T- so time travel, I think, is a, is a motif that's sort of migrated over to fantasy. Yeah. And science fiction doesn't deal with it very seriously anymore.
0: Okay. Well, I mean, ideas well, do come and go, and they do, I guess, tire out. It'll be interesting to see, since you raised time travel, when you referenced Salvage, salvage and Demolition, I think is the novella from Tim Powers that's just coming out yeah. from Subterranean this month, um, that Anne and Jeff Vandermeer, those... In, indefatigable editors are doing another 600,000-word anthology, this time on time travel, which I think will be interesting to see. I think it will be very interesting to see, because my my guess
1: is, without having any clues to what the contents of their anthology will be, is that time travel at one point seemed like a fairly reasonable, uh, at the the time of H.G. Wells, and for the 50 years after H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine, seemed like a reasonable... um, science fictional invention and now i think science fiction the scientific end of science fiction the hard science fiction end, has decided it's not going to happen
0: yeah
1: and when, s- when you decide something's not going to happen as a scientific concept it becomes a literary conceit and as a literary conceit it's absolutely terrific mark twain knew that with the connecticut yes, yankee sure authors. sure
0: um yeah let me ask you another question which bounces around because I've been reading, I mean, I'm going to come back to the list question just so you know at some point, but I've been tinkering around trying to get an introduction written to my horrible best science fiction of the year thing that I've got to do. I hate doing that that introduction. Trying to find some avenue into it. Um, which means that I've been going back and looking at stuff and thinking about things from across the, you know, this year, thinking about discussions and arguments and, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, I keep coming back to Paul Kincaid, because I think it's the most interesting piece of criticism to refer to uh, that I've come across all year. Right. And I think the thing that we underlooked in our, uh, overlooked in our, our conversation of it uh, back uh, in September or whatever it was, was the idea when, we t- when he talks about exhaustion of science fiction and turning away from the future and being mm-hmm. uh, blo- you know, being distracted, I guess, by the whole idea of the singularity. When he talks about that exhaustion, he does say, and I don't know that I picked up on it well enough at the time, that it's not really about those areas where the field is blurring and genres are crossing and all that kind of thing. It's actually the, the in, in the mainstream of the genre. Yeah, what what Gardner does repeatedly refers to as core science fiction, and I assume well, equally core fantasy, but let's say core science fiction. Yeah. Right. So it's the evolution and development of... The big spaceship novel, of uh, the, the the large scale space opera. You know, are you seeing in that venue innovation and development and confronting? today. I mean, McElmont in his piece, this, uh, by the way, I reckon this podcast is going to really annoy Jonathan because we're not disagreeing with him enough. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> he says, I believe that science fiction must either speak to the world as is today or remains forever silent. Now I'm not completely convinced by that. Partially convinced, not completely. And that talks, I think, to the, this idea that Paul has about exhaustion, what he actually means when it comes to it and mm. does core science fiction in 2012 talk enough about today?
1: That's an interesting question and I think that one of the question, well, one of the subtext of that question is that does science fiction's traditional set of themes and icons sufficiently address today? In other words, are we really worried about robots? Are we really dreaming of interstellar travel? Probably not. I mean, those are not, those are not concerns today. I doesn't, it doesn't mean that science fiction in general doesn't address these concerns. I think a good example of a writer who probably does, um, is Daryl Gregory, Mm -hmm. because Daryl Gregory's stories tend to deal with the nature of consciousness, with the possibility of the, the various possibilities of what happens in terms of brain chemistry. Uh, If your personality, if your brain is erased, if it's replaced by somebody else, if if you become obsessed with one moment in time. In other words, he's he's really writing neurological science fiction based on a kind of neurology that essentially did not exist at the time that Heinlein and Asimov and Frank Herbert were writing. So to that extent, and I think to the extent that he deals with questions of identity again and again and again, he deals with questions of of sort of um, a, a cultural matrix that begins... With Philip K. Dick, rather than ends with Philip K. Dick, I think he's, he's somebody who's, who's very uh, thinking in very contemporary terms about um, about science. Um, I don't know how much more you can do with planetary exploration, with generation starships, with uh, dystop time travel into a dystopian future, that sort of thing. I think that I think that the the bulk of traditional science fiction themes they're not used up because there's no theme that's ever used up to a good writer. Yeah. But I think to some extent they, I think to some extent they may have gotten to the point of becoming points of reference rather than the exciting themes. In other words, you read a story about well, Robo apocalypse is a good
0: example.
1: Apocalypse, mm-hmm. as far as I could tell, all 20 pages that I read of it uh, is a cliche. It's an extended cliche. It's a, it's another robot revolution. Mm-hmm. And, a science fiction reader goes 20 pages into that and says, "Oh, another robot revolution." The mainstream writers, the mainstream readers rather,
0: apparently thought, "This is really cool. Let's read on and see what happens here." Well, sure, but I mean, you don't want to sit here and go, "Well, we've we don't need another first contact story because it's been done." You know, surely the world we're living in pushes that enough. But I mean, look, I mean, I look at the kind of stuff which Again, I mean, Macaulay, I guess he is, I mean, he's very science focused for a science fiction writer, which is not a bad thing. I'm not mm-hmm. saying it's a flaw. But he says, you know, look, there's information on new cosmology, brain theory, string theory, dark matter, nanotech, quantum computing, modern bi- biotechnology. That stuff is stuff that we're not confronting as much.
1: I think it's true. And I do think that Paul Macaulay, uh, to give him some credit, has made efforts to confront each of those. Mm. And he's even made efforts to confront issues like. It's interesting. One of the things I discovered just this past week, this is a parenthesis, because his novel Whole Wide World had a lot to do with the video surveillance of London. Mm -hmm. I've now learned that Chicago is on second only to London in terms of video surveillance of its citizens on the street. But that was an issue and is an issue, which Paul was writing that novel, am I right, 10 years ago maybe?
0: More than that probably. Which one, sorry? Uh, Yes, it would have been. Whole Wide world. World, yeah, it would be. Um, so I think
1: I think there are writers who are who are very much aware of what the current concerns are, um, and I don't think the problem I don't think the problem that uh, necessarily that either uh, well I I don't, I don't think the problem that Jonathan McElmont was identifying was as much a problem with the writers as it might be with the readers. Uh, I think Paul Kincaid's point was a little bit more directed at writers that there tends to be. A tendency and we talked about this when he was on our podcast there's there's an easy tendency for somebody steeped in science fiction lore to perform a classic science fiction trope yeah i do. i will do the time travel story i'll do the alien invasion story i'll do the uh robot apocalypse story and i think people do that because they know how to do it yeah uh, but you're right i mean the question is are there are there new ideas in science fiction are there is there the possibility of new ideas in science
0: fiction? Um, well, well, I'll start by saying you have to believe that there are the possibility of new, new ideas in science fiction. Let, let, let's cut this particular thing closer to home. Okay. Are people like you and me, Gary, mm-hmm. uh, commentators, reviewers, whatever else, are we cutting a field too much slack in our commentary in this area?
1: Cutting people too much slack. Are we
0: demanding? Are we failing to demand high enough standards when we read, review, comment upon stuff?
1: Let me um, refer back to when we were talking to Graham Joyce last week. Um, high standards can come in two flavors. There are high standards. I want new ideas. I want original things I've never thought about before. Mm-hmm. And if you give me something which is just mind blowing enough. I will forgive you other flaws in the writing. Yep. The other new, the other new thing is a sort of new thing that Graham Joyce did in his novel, *The silent land. Yep. I'm going to take one of the oldest cliches in science fiction, one of the oldest cliches in fantastic literature and make it new yep. by virtue of my skill as a writer. Yep. And that's exactly what he did in the silent land. So no, the silent land from a science fictional fantasy from any aspect of fantastica, that's not a new idea. It's not an exciting idea. The challenge to the writer then becomes to make it exciting.
0: Fair enough. But then let me ask you a, a, a corollary question, perhaps, if, if that's correct. Uh, okay. Let us allow – if we allow that you can innovate and add value to old ideas in fantasy, is there a different requirement for science fiction? Does science fiction require greater – innovation and con- confrontation with new ideas and potentially new kinds of stories than fantasy does well
1: I mean uh, one of the charms of, of the silent land which is I, I don't want to keep coming back to that but yeah you know, for, for most of the length of the novel you it, it poises on the on the edge between science fiction and fantasy Sure I don't know where it could resolve itself And to, to that extent I th- I, what, what I do think has happened in science fiction, Uh, in recent years and to much the same extent in fantasy and to some extent in horror fiction is that I think what commentators like you and I and others that I respect look for is sufficient excellence in writing that, uh, that you don't have to balance off. You don't have to do the Hal Clement thing. You don't have to, you don't have to do the balancing. This is a really cool idea and I don't really know how to write characters. But
0: I hope you'll buy the cool idea anyway.
1: I don't think writers can get away with that anymore.
0: But are we letting them get away with the, I can write really well line by line, build interesting characters and scenarios, but I'm not going to come up with, a, come up with a, an interesting, new or provocative idea when I do. I'm going to not confront what may or may not be depending on your feelings, the, the, the fundamental mission of science fiction, which is to talk about the world we may live in. And, the, and how that impacts on the world we are living in.
1: If there, um, okay, my, my approach as a reviewer has always been try to suss out what what the author is trying to do. If the author is interested in exploring a variety of new ideas and somehow fails in that, if the new ideas end up simply being shotgunned at us uh, as though we're targets, then it's it's the, the ideas might be interesting, but they're not presented interestingly. I'll give you an example. A novel we've talked about several times on this podcast, which I think does engage with new ideas and particularly new ideas involving gender is Stan Robinson's 2312. Yep. In many ways, it's a very traditional science fiction story. It's a very traditional interplanetary adventure set among the planets of the solar system. It has classic science fiction inventions in it, like the Mm -hmm. moving cities of Mercury and so forth, but it has some really interesting and innovative thinking about gender as a lifestyle choice, uh, a changeable lifestyle choice. And it's not a minor theme in the novel as well. And I think, I think that Stan is aware of the fact that that is increasingly uh, an area of of interest and concern and of a possible change in the near to mid future. And he he dealt with it in in a responsible science fictional way. Is the gender theme in 2312, crucial to the plot? Actually, probably not. But it's crucial to the book. But it's crucial to the book. Okay. So I think there are a number of writers who are doing that. Maybe not as many as we would like.
0: What One book, of the... Yeah. Go ahead. I say, what books have you read in 2012 that you feel move the discussion of the field forward that are substantially innovative and have more to more to recommend them than they were very well written Hmm.
1: well i would go back uh here's an odd one but i think it's uh valid because it's it's ironic because i've not reviewed it yet it's the eternal flame okay be the second greg egan book Mm -hmm. Because he's dealing with Greg Egan ideas, but he's also dealing with gender ideas and with societal ideas in the way that he hasn't before. And he's dealing with the implications of, well, in his case, the change of a fundamental law of physics as to how that might affect um, issues such as gender and society. But what he does is he invites us to look at how the physical universe determines our behavior even without these radical changes. Uh, so, so to some extent, he's dealing with—he's writing se- seriously philosophical fiction using very uh, Egan-esque, cutting-edge ideas that uh, very few other people can get away with. Um, the, uh, the 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 other thing that happened, which, which was interesting, uh, we talked about the Quantum Thief mm. uh, last year, which in some senses is both forward-looking and backward-looking because yep. it takes it takes. Early 20th century mystery stories, Maurice LeBlanc, as its narrative model, but then adds on all sorts of uh, bizarrely creative um, uh, post-human, post human, uh, post information, uh, information sphere, infosphere kinds of cultures. And the second novel in the series strikes me as not moving much beyond that. Yeah, fair enough. It, it very, very well, but doesn't move much beyond it. The, the somebody from a few years ago that I thought was completely reinventing the way I thought about the future before Ryan Yemi was David Marasek Yes. Who in a series of stories and a stunning novel uh, just made me think. I didn't not, I'd never thought remotely the future could be anything like that. <laughs> but he, he seems to have stopped writing very much.
0: Yes. He, he, well, he does. I mean, he, uh, I, I'm not aware of what he's been doing lately, but I haven't seen anything newly published from him in, in some little while. I want to ask you just quickly as well, since we're sort of bouncing around and failing to make much sense. Do you feel that the Greg Egan orthogonal, orthogonal trilogy has been underappreciated?
1: Well, I think it has. I, I think that uh, I think Greg Egan knows he has a limited audience to begin with. I think he knows he makes demands on his audience that um, that a science fiction readership. Let's be honest the science fiction readership weaned on Orson Scott Card uh, or or even Nancy Kress or mm-hmm. even Lois McMaster Bujold is yep. not going to find Greg Egan's universe a welcoming universe. True. Uh, and he doesn't do a lot to uh, to uh, to deal with that. On the same by by the, by the same token, again if we go back and look at historical uh, precedence, I suspect that a lot of the people who loved reading Ray Bradbury and Clifford Simak back in the 50s
0: had a hard time with Hal Clement. Possibly so. I mean, but see, there's part of it that says what Egan is doing then is ra- ri- rising to the fundamental mission of a science fiction writer in the 21st century. I think he's trying to. I think he's trying
1: to at the expense of a very wide readership, and I think he knows that. I mean, one of the problems with science fiction in the 21st century is science in the 21st century
0: that's true i mean but but you see now now you're risking gary k wolf the whole uh singularity argument is aren't you which is i mean setting the single what you're about to say is because science the science is difficult to comprehend then creating stories based on it is difficult to achieve um and the future is difficult to imagine Difficult to
1: imagine, difficult to difficult to fictionalize, difficult to present in a fictional context. Um, there are ways of doing it. There are people who are interestingly enough, Gregory Benford, even with his most contemporary fiction, is dealing with fairly fairly complex uh, astronomical and physics ideas. But uh, but he tends to do that in the context. He, he's a writer of an age who probably does hark back to Heinlein and, mm. and Hal Clinton. He presents these ideas in a context of recognizable human characters and recognizable human situations who have to deal with strange cosmic uh, manifestations. Egan doesn't do that. Egan, in his trilogy, doesn't even give us human characters, doesn't even give us a universe that we can recognize unless we understand the physics behind it.
0: Now, is Egan, in your opinion, playing fair with us? Because one of the things that makes science fiction work i guess uh in uh, as king kincaid says in his essay Mm -hmm. is where if you're engaging with the future what you actually do is you can create a future universe that is incomprehensible inexplicable right to Mm -hmm. us today but it works if and the if is if the characters living in that universe understand it it's when they appear baffled and disaffected by it as well that it all fails and that you have this um, singularity kind of fiction where you just say, oh, it's all just too strange after that and we can't understand it. Uh, Egan, I think, is still tr- he's still trying to write science fiction where the characters in that universe understand it, that it attempts to hark back to where we are and there is some kind of evolutionary path from where we are to, to where they are in the story
1: it's possible in the sense that you can imagine some way of getting from here to there, not, not a chronological way, like from here in the future, but if we made a couple of changes in the laws of physics, we could get there. Yeah. What I don't know th- in, in that sense, in, 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 sense in the sense of building a world and describing bizarre effects of light and uh, the effects of, of, of uh, transportation near the mm. speed of light, all, all, all the kinds of reversals of physics are very ingeniously handled. What he does do, uh, and what I think radical science fiction, in the sense of using radical science, tends always to do, is ends up writing a story about characters with recognizable motivations doing recognizable things. One of the strongest things about the first, uh, uh, The Clockwork Rocket, the first uh, novel in the the trilogy, is that we're, we're immediately disoriented by the bizarre physics of it. But then after a while, and I will parenthetically give... Credit to our mutual friend, Karen Burnham, for having shown sure. this to me. Uh, he's dealing with a young woman scientist going through college and going through graduate school and effectually, effect- effectively going through her training, dealing with all the real problems of gender that women scientists face in a way probably more effectively than he's done in his um, uh, his, more contemporary fiction. Um, but what, what, uh, what, what that means is essentially that no matter how radical the hard science fiction is the story is likely to devolve on a familiar story of character.
0: Well, And that's understandable to some point because you're writing fiction after all and you're trying to connect with people who are reading and character yeah. is one of the primary me- tools you use to do that. One of the primary mechanisms you create comprehensible characters. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting question to try to come to terms with because I think whether okay, or not... I should
1: be asking you this because it occurred to me before the podcast, I meant to point this out to you, that in terms of ideas in science fiction, you read, I'm gonna guess, 10 times as much as I do because you're reading all the short fiction. Maybe, yeah. You're reading the short fiction, every science fiction story, short or long, has to have some idea in it. Are you seeing people, I mean, you're doing year's best anthologies, you're commissioning original stories for your own anthologies, some of which ask for traditional stories like Life on Mars, um, some of which don't. Are you seeing people repeating the same themes over and over again? Or are you seeing, in when you look for the year's best, a short fiction writers that are just doing something no one has quite tried doing before?
0: I don't think that I'm seeing a lot of work that is genuinely innovative, honestly. Mm-hmm. I see more of it actually in fantasy in a way because there is an attempt to mix the tool set that science fiction and fantasy use in order to tell stories. Yeah. And so there are writers out there who are pushing the form in that way for in, in fantasy in science fiction. I see plenty of people who are doing interesting work, but I'm not seeing particularly, and it may just be that I'm not pushing myself hard enough to find it. Um, someone who's writing genuinely innovative, Boundary pushing science fiction at the moment.
1: I I'm trying to think of examples because I was thinking of well I was thinking of a number of writers who are very good younger writers. Uh, the two mm. names that come to mind. Okay, two names that come to mind are Rachel Swirsky and, and and Kat Valente, who've both done essentially robots in a very simplified way. Robots wanting to be human stories. Yes. Pinocchio stories, stories that go back to AI, that go back to Brian Aldous's Summer Toys Lost All, last, uh, was it Super Toys Last All Summer Long. Sure. Uh, science fiction has been writing stories like that since before there was science fiction, if you count Carlo Collodi. With
0: yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. Um, is there anything wrong with
1: that? Science no, fiction there's nothing really wrong with it at all.
0: at all. No, I don't think there's anything uh-huh. wrong with it at all. I think Valenti in the last 24 months has, fi- has come into herself as a major mature writer. That's I what think I think. I think there's been a batch of stories that have come out that confirm that on categorically. I think Swirsky is developing in that direction as well, though she's had a fairly quiet 12 months or so, though there was a very good story of hers in uh, The Future is Japanese, which which mm. was very good called The Sea of Trees, I think it was. Um, but see, I'm trying to think because I mean Hanurai and Yemi has written some quite interesting short fiction. Uh but I don't know that it really pushes the boundaries. Um, Peter Watts Mm -hmm. can, but he's still working from a traditional tool set. What I like about him is he's really unflinching about the the working out the ramifications of his concept and the moral and the um, practical implications of it. Uh, In that sense, I see him being very much in the same space as kids Johnson, even though I don't think you'd read the two of them and think they're remotely alike, but I think there's no. a, there's a deep conceptual honesty to what they're doing. Um, but every now and again, I mean, I, I look back as, as, as my history in my history as a science fiction reader, and every now and again, you'll come across something you think is genuinely game changing, genuinely new that you haven't encountered very, you know, before. And I am encountering work that I think is genuinely good. I am encountering work that I think is really maybe attempting to push the field, mm-hmm. and I can see young younger writers who are attempting at the Tim Morns and those kind of people. Uh, but I've not yet—it's been quite quite a few years since I've read a really gosh wow piece that seemed to really change things. You know, I think some people felt that The Wind-Up Girl might have been that book. It is, after all, the second most awarded book in the history of science fiction. Irrespective of the qualities of that, I think that status of being the second most awarded book in the history of science fiction actually has more to say about the state of the field at the time than it does about the book, uh, because I don't know that it is that innovative, although it has its its strengths. Mm. Um, and I think that there's a hunger for that kind of work. We're just not seeing it. I think at one point I thought that Charlie Stross's Accelerando was that. Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, I think it's probably more traditional, despite its strengths and qualities, than I thought it was. Because Charles, I mean, Charlie's quite a rigorous thinker about, about about this kind of stuff and does some interesting stuff. And I thought his book the other year, the name of which escapes me, I'm just mm-hmm. getting so old, um, really at least attempted to do something interesting and new. So, you know, there is stuff being done.
1: Oh, there's a lot of interesting I guess, uh, playing with ideas that happens with Charlie Strauss and happens with Cory Doctorow and happens with a, a number of uh, younger writers. But I think Cory Doctorow is a good example of somebody who looks forward and backward at the same time. On the one hand, is he's pointedly writing stories in honor of earlier science fiction. He, he, he,
0: he certainly went through that phase, there's no doubt. Um, I'm not sure that I see in Cory's written work the same amount of things thought and consideration that i see in what he says publicly uh so i'm still waiting with core from with cory for something more permanently substantial i thought little brother was going to be the you know the, a game-changing book for him and i think it was in many ways but i think it also sort of became intrinsically of its moment you know and then time mm. moved on much has happened to accelerando you know Atelorando was a, a, a major book of its moment, and it's still a valuable and worthwhile book, and I would recommend that you to read it. Well, I think, but, I think one of the uh, things becoming. I'm sorry, I didn't mean no, to. No, correct. no, that's fine. No, no please, interrupt. Well, I think one of the things
1: becoming apparent in modern science fiction, science fiction of the last 20 to 30 years, is that you can't really separate uh, technological innovation from cultural change. One of the things that you get in The, in, in the Wind Up Girl, for example, is a culture which is largely based in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, Al Reynolds has set the center of future technology in Kenya, I believe. Um, There is certainly Ian McDonald. Yes. uh, In other words, there's a lot of innovative thinking going on about what the future might be like, but it's not necessarily innovative thinking about scientific principles. Science fiction can no longer imagine a future based solely on technological and scientific
0: discoveries. And it have would, to be based on cultural shifts. True, uh, but then uh, we've never lived in a time when we've more been more dependent on, upon scientific discovery, on a, in our day-to-day lives. You know, so you would think that s- imagining how scientific discovery will impact on our day-to-day lives should be a basic task for science fiction, surely
1: but not the only task of science no, fiction. No, no, My no. My point no. is that the the, the, the cultural the, the, the cultural future, the yeah. um if you will the uh, multicultural future, which has been evident in the world
0: for the last 1000 years, let's say, more or <laughs> less escaped the attention of science fiction until the last 30 or 40 years. Well, I mean, yes, but then science modern science modern American science fiction I have to be careful because it's not the only science fiction in the world. Modern mm-hmm. American science fiction to some degree grew through the 50s. You know? and that left a mark on it that it is it is yet to fully cast off, though it's encouraging that it's beginning to try. You know, as I said on another podcast last weekend, one of the best the great the best trends of 2012 had to be the large number of non Western, non Anglo specific anthologies that were being published. Yes, you know, which illustrates my
1: point. Uh, the the the, the science fiction. Uh, so to some extent. I I think the real, to get back to Jonathan Mackleman's argument or Paul Kincaid's argument or Paul McCauley's argument, that part of the failing of science fiction um, over the last 50 or 60 years is is a narrowness of focus, a narrowness of focus in terms, not even of science, really, but of technology and engineering. Mm -hmm. The Heinlein model of science fiction is a model of technology and engineering. Heinlein didn't imagine very many interesting scientific innovations in that career.
0: Fair enough. Hmm. So Let me what just... Does that... where, what does that say? Where does it leave us? It leaves us three quarters of an hour into the podcast, Gary. Oh. <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, it, in fact, it leaves, leaves an hour into the podcast, Gary. Um, I don't know. I, I think it leaves us... Okay, this is what I would try to take away from that aspect of the discussion as it impacts on you and I and on our listeners, I think maybe you and I, me and my capacity both as reviews editor for Locus and as a best of the year editor and you as a critic and reviewer and commentator on the field have an obligation to try and seek out and promote these works that push forward the field. I think we do. Uh, And to try to have a dialogue that addresses more than just the quality of the writing and that asks the question of whether we're attempting to fulfill some basic mission of science fiction even though I share the view that science fiction has more than one mission, there is more than one measure of excellence, uh, that a book cannot push forward the form and still be valuable. But I think we, we need to talk about that stuff more so that we can play our part in pushing the field forward. Otherwise, I think we're, we're kind of not doing that enough. I would agree that we need to promote books and stories that,
1: that uh – that seem to give you some of the same frisson you got when you were discovering science fiction i don't think that means i don't think the converse of that is true i don't think that means attacking or resisting books and stories which celebrate what science fiction has already been able to do uh there are a lot of very good science fiction writers who tend to write fairly within a fairly traditional set of themes and they're fascinated to some extent by the literary challenge of working out the theme in a new way. good example Mm Nancy Nancy Kress. Nancy Kress is is certainly one of the most skilled science fiction writers alive. And in the last 10 years, she's not spent a lot of time trying to blow our minds with radically new concepts. She's tried to play virtuoso variations on concepts that most science fiction readers will recognize. I don't think that she's to be faulted for doing that. I'm
0: not faulting her for doing that, but I'm going to ask you a question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: list name this is really bad I shouldn't do this name two really memorable uh, books by Nancy Kress books or stories? books mm. I'm playing unfair I know I'm being unfair with this but um, well, I've got I've got, a re- I've got a point because I think Kress is a great technician and I like her work and I think um, her novella it's not my day for various reasons uh, blah, 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 blah. Brains... what was the what's the novella? Oh,
1: Brain Um, I know what you're talking about. The um, famous
0: novella. Will will be read for years. If, if right. Remember its name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're gonna rotten hell, Gary. Well, certainly Beggars in Spain. Beggars in Spain, sorry, Beggars in Spain. Beggars in Spain will be remembered. But I I don't know. I think that the novels are fairly traditional kind of things, and and they're good. But I don't know they're going that they're going to be discussed or remembered that much. Well,
1: sorry. Some of them will. Um, it's it's interesting. Uh, It's the sort of things that sometimes out of all them bright stars is a classic story that has nothing new in it conceptually at all. Mm. Uh, It's very well done. The voice is very well done. It's sort of a classic short story, which happens to be a science fiction short story, which is not the same thing as a classic science fiction short story. True. You can have a, uh, it's, it's one of the things that Paul, we were talking with Paul Kincaid about the idea of performance. You can use a science fiction theme or concept or, or, or template yep. performatively. In other words, you can say, okay, I am going to have aliens coming to Earth, and I'm going to do it better than anybody has done it before. A lot of people have written very good stories that way.
0: True, true. Uh,
1: on the other hand, there are the conceptually new writers, uh, which are the ones you're talking about, and I think we need to look for the next Greg Egan, or the next Daryl
0: Gregory, or the
1: next uh, Charlie Strauss.
0: Or the nurse, uh, next Ursula Gwynn, or the next James Tiptree, or the next Joanna Ross. Exactly. Uh and yet are we seeing them? We
1: don't I think it's too early to say. I mean during Joanna Russ's career, as a matter of fact, there was not a huge amount of excitement about her short fiction as it was appearing in the magazine. She was considered a very good writer. Yes. But I don't think that the revolutionary aspect of her work came to everybody's
0: attention until well after the stories had originally appeared. How much excitement was no there was I was gonna say how much excitement was there about Tip Tree? At the time, but I guess there was. There really was in the '70s. There was a lot of. So yeah. So. So, yeah. Um, though I think she sort of went through a period where she was less appreciated for a while. I'm going to pull this around because we're we're a good hour into the podcast and we could talk about being optimistic for next year and the books we're looking mm-hmm. forward to and there's a whole bunch of them uh, that could well prove to be interesting and rewarding. And I actually think t- that uh, the uh, 2013 looks like an interesting year. You know, it really does. But just quickly, um, let's pull this back, if you will, Mm -hmm. to the Locust Poll, which is coming up. 100
1: Best Books of the 20th and 21st Centuries.
0: Two separate lists. Four four separate acts of lists. Four separate lists. Well, in the end, you vote on four categories. You vote for the top 10 20th century SF novels, Mm -hmm. top 20th century fantasy novels, top 20th century novellas, novelettes, short stories. And there's a million categories. I want to ask you a first question, Gary, and it's really unfair, but I'll chip in myself. Have you voted, Gary? I voted, and I regret having voted. Oh, oh, excellent. I have not voted, and I don't regret not having voted. Why mm. ha- uh, Why do you regret having voted? Well,
1: once you get past making the initial list, and Locus provides you with a long list of uh, everything that's been nominated for any award ever, I guess, uh, and I, I immediately thought, I okay, I'll I'll keep looking at titles and I'll keep thinking of titles and I'll fill up each ballot and I think with the novella or novella category, I realized having submitted my ballot and having spent more time on it than I really wanted to, I'd left out one of the pieces of short fiction, which I think is absolutely one of the most important in science fiction. Which is? Which is John Crowley's great work of time. Okay. Possibly one of the best time travel stories ever written. It wasn't on any of the lists that I saw and so it just simply didn't occur to me and one of those things you think oh man i should have had a, i could have had a v8 uh so so I, I send in the list it's there it's 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 being tabulated by uh, the by, by, by mark and the locust elves and there's stuff on it that i wanted there that i just didn't think of in time and the problem with any list like that is that as soon as i send in the ballot Two days later, I'm thinking, I, no, that novel, that wasn't that good. This would have been better. I lay awake nights thinking I have done John Crowley a disservice,
0: although I did a little big on the ballot for the best is novel. I'm sure John doesn't matter that, mind that much. So you didn't vote at all? I didn't vote at all. Thought about it for, no, in fact, no, I didn't even think about it. I was kind of, first of all, busy and distracted with other things. And I, I went through a brief kind of disenchantment with a concept that sort of shocked my dear wife, Marianne. She was very disappointed in me this week, Gary, because she's been plugging away, working at her list diligently and doing a fine job oh. and coming up with an interesting list. Um, and I, she, she came and she said, oh, so, tell me, Locust list. I no, yeah, I'm not doing that. And she was like, what? And I think she thought we were going to have a big, long discussion about it and was disappointed. And I'm trying to work out why. I think partly it was this task of either someone gives you a list to prompt you. Or you're going to overlook that stuff. Now, there's no crime yeah. in overlooking things. It's, it's a matter of memory. And sometimes just you know, you'll go – or, or you, you, know, you and you don't have time to go back and reread. I mean, is it Reasons to be Cheerful by Greg Egan that you think is one of the greatest novelettes of all time? Or is it right. Learning to be Me? Because it's going to be one of the two, but you've got to work it Remember, which is the one where the guy chooses what he's going to actually like and dislike and how that shapes his, his, his career? And are you now – right or wrong to basically mostly dismiss as i tend to now most of the work of harlan ellison or you know there's just these questions i, I just became yeah. uncomfortable with wanting to put together a list and what i was painfully aware of as well particularly when it came to the no- you know, the novels when i thought about it for a few minutes was generally i have a couple of novels that i've loved and adored every year that don't appear mm-hmm. on any list and mark who's done a sterling job and i'm not criticizing his list he's done a sterling job compiling his lists but they're based on books that have won awards and all that kind of thing. And quite often, yeah. very major books don't. So that means they just don't appear in the prompt lists. And then there's the cynic in me that says, you know what? We're going to open up this list one day when Mark publishes it. And this is not an artifact of his work or of Locus's behavior or anything else. It's just an artifact of how things goes. And the number one science fiction novel of the 20th century will be Gary. Dune. And the number one fantasy novel of the 20th century will be Gary.
1: Lord of the Rings.
0: And you sit there and go, Oh, well, yeah. Well, there's a difference
1: between having a list. If somebody asks you to – remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about this book I was commissioned to do and never did on the 100 best science fiction mm-hmm. books ranked. If you were going to produce a list that was going to be out in public with your name on it um, and as opposed to a list where you're simply voting anonymously yeah. with a bunch of other people, it's yeah. going to be two different
0: lists I think largely. Oh, there's that. I mean absolutely because you sit there I – mean, okay – if we vote in this list, no one's going to actually say, we're now going to publish Gary Wolf's ballot and we'll publish Jonathan oh, Strand's ballot. But there's that your mindset potentially kind of changes. I mean, you sit down in a bar to talk to a friend and you say, this is a book I really loved you sit down to come up with a a definitive list for your book that you're talking about that you didn't do. Yeah. And then it's like, Oh, hang on a minute. I don't know that I can actually just talk about stuff. I like it better be stuff. That's in some sense important or canonical or whatever else. And that skews it very much. And sometimes the works you do love the most are canonical for various reasons, but sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just books. You really like that You're happy to talk to about friends, talk to friends about because they have various qualities and values. Um, so yeah, it's so, well, so yeah. Okay. I, 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 anyway, I, I didn't play. I didn't play. I mean, I I, I mentioned the Crowley-Novella simply because
1: I knew, and, and the reason I wish, I wish the reason I re, I may have put it on the list at the last minute, I don't know, but the reason I really wanted it on the list was simply to get it on somebody's radar. I didn't think there was any chance it was going to win enough votes to be on any, whatever, uh, ballot uh, emerges from this sort of thing, but I think there is that sense that. If you're voting anonymously, there's a certain sense that you want certain things to get more votes, even though on your own list, you might not might not have put them that high.
0: True, true. Okay, here's one for you quickly to wind it up. Because mm-hmm. we should begin to wind up. We're probably at an hour and 15 minutes or something. I know, I know. We'll get judged by it, Gary. Um, mm-hmm. What would you have put as the number one science fiction novel of the 20th century?
1: Of the 20th century? Damn, if you'd gone back five years earlier to 1895, I might have put the time machine down. Um, But I have to start with 1900,
0: right? I think that was the rule. Best? See, this is the other question. No, 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 no. Stop wiggling. You are are wriggling on the hook, Gary. Just answer the question.
1: Well, I, 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 I can only blurt out titles that are going through my mind as we speak, and they are they are the novels that most affected me when I began a reader of science fiction. They include Last and First Men. They include Earth Abides by George O. Smith. They probably would include um, I don't know if there's a single Heinlein novel I would put on that list. What what. Uh, I'm not... One book, Gary. One book. Do you have a book in mind? Sure. Oh, you have a
0: book in mind. Fine. Do do you think I possibly would have asked this question if I wasn't going to cheat and already have my own answer ready?
1: 20th century. Most important... The best. Best science fiction. Not, Not most important, but best. Um...
0: Off the top of my head. (laughs) As you'll notice, dear listeners, at this point in the podcast, we didn't have a technical problem. We had a conceptual problem where one of us began to obfuscate as much as we could so we could think a little bit longer about a question we weren't entirely comfortable answering. (laughs)
1: Well, okay, just to give you an answer, I'll say a canticle for
0: Leibowitz. And why do you pick a canticle
1: for Leibowitz, Gary? It covers a number of themes. It covers the theme of the loss and recovery of knowledge. It covers essentially the entire history of civilization the Middle Ages through nuclear destruction and recapitulates that in various ways. It deals with knowledge, and I think science fiction fundamentally deals with knowledge and how we manage it.
0: Okay. I think that's a, a wonderful answer, and I think it's a fine book, and I don't think it'll make the top 10. Probably uh, not. Uh, though it deserves to, I would certainly, well, I would be very happy to see it there. And actually, just as a quick aside, what's interesting is a lot of people are publishing their lists around the place. And what's interesting is how often you sit there going, well, yes, I could have picked that. Yes, I could have picked that. So there's a kind of useful, interesting consensus. I love Neil Harrison's or Niall. Is it Neil or Niall? Neil? Neil, Neil Harrison. Neil Harrison's list because his top science fiction novel of the 20th century was Pacific Age by Stan Robinson, uh, which I have a deep and ongoing love affair with. It's a very thoughtful choice. It's a great choice. Okay, here's my choice, Gary, for the number one science fiction novel of the 20th century. And Mm -hmm. I can tell you why. Neuromancer by William Gibson, which is an obvious and a straightforward and an easy choice, even though it often doesn't get into the top 10 for whatever reason. Uh My reason is it's the only game-changing book that I read that was published during my reading lifetime. You're confusing game-changing with best. Uh, it stands out. It, it, it was the complete mindfuck book that of the mid-80s. Mid it, it was tra- that. It, it, I mean, I look back, and I can't think of many equivalent books. I mean, it's it's the same reason, I guess, that one of the greatest stories I ever read was what, like, Learning to Be Me by Egan uh, and R&R by Lucia Shepard. Which were mm-hmm. mid eighties mid eighties stories. I mean, R and R, which is one of the great novellas of all time by Lucia Shepard, came out in eighty six. Um, I think Learning to Be Me and Reasoning to Be Cheerful came out fairly close together in the mid eighties, and similarly, Neuromancer came out in nineteen eighty four. So some of it's like my age. I mean, like I was twenty two. It's all very well I was to talk about. It. It's all very well, <laughs> well to talk about the, you know, the the golden age of science fiction being twelve, but uh, the golden age of growing up and becoming a human being is probably at some point in your mid twenties, and. Those were game-changing pieces of fiction, so they would appear on my list. I think that's
1: true. I, I, if, if you're looking at game-changing things, or game-changing in the sense that I read this and thought, I did not know science fiction could do anything remotely like that. But then we good. Then we do get into a generational change. We do. We get I, into a change because uh, one of the books, one of the stories. It's not a book. One of the stories that made me wake up, which probably at my age had something of a similar effect as neuromancer did on you yeah. would have been ballard's the terminal beach sure the terminal beach was like when you were reading that and it was one of the first things i read in what was then the new Wave. but it was certainly one of the best new wave stories of yeah. all and it was a complete reimagining of what thinking about the future might be like yep yeah. and it, it, it was stunning so that if, if we were to that that raises a different question what's the, you mentioned neuromancer is the novel What's the most important science fiction, or the best science fiction story of the 20th century, which is also on the Locust Pole?
0: You're entitled to ask that. I'm going to give you, I wish I could remember which of it is. It's one of those two Egan stories, Gary. The Egan story? It, yeah. I, I come back to it. And I come back to it. It is brilliant. It is concise. The concept in it, the idea that you have, because I was thinking about this morning, I was out walking this morning. Mm-hmm. You have this character who suffers, I think it was a brain injury, and loses the, the ability to emote and to have feelings about what he actually likes or dislikes. And right. he gets through some of his life, and then they come up with this technology that's going to allow him to genuinely like and appreciate things again. And he then gets to go through and make an, an objective choice about his subjectivity. And that mm-hmm. forms the person who he will be. And he can change it again in the future. So he has this thing where he can sit there and go, okay, I, th- I need to get fit. I will choose to actually love exercise. I will choose to love eating you know, uh, broccoli or something, not chocolate. Right. And then he does. He actually loves it. It says really fascinating things fundamentally about what it is to be uh, a person, a human being, how we, we deal with that. So it, it's extraordinarily interesting and mature and challenging. About about what we think about how how we come to be people, so that's why I I I would be really tempted. And there are some other great great choices. I mean, because it's all a little bit meaningless. We know it's a little bit meaningless, but But that's one I would pick. Yes. uh,
1: In in terms of if you were to ask, okay, if you were to ask me what is the best science fiction story of the twentieth century about what it means to be people? Yeah. Yeah. the, The problem when we start taking the term science fiction, which is an amorphous term and covers, as we know dozens of sub-th- sub-themes now is we're, com- we're obviously comparing various kinds of vegetables with various kinds it of carburetors um i mean i would have thought there are things that and, and another question that uh, uh, funny when, when i mentioned that when i asked you the question the two stories that popped into my mind without any thought at all were alfred bester's fondly fahrenheit sure,
0: story.
1: and james tiptree's the only neat thing to do
0: sure oh 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 gary I love The Only New Thing to Do, but you know what? I reread it a couple of years back. It doesn't hold up as much as you think it does.
1: I don't want to think. I don't want to know
0: that. I do it's not a, want bit, know it's that. a bit Heinlein-esque. Really? The Only neat Thing to Do? Yes, it is. Well, there are. I mean,
1: between the Screwfly solution and I awoke and found me here on the Cold Hill side, uh, if, if there were a writer who probably produced more stories that I might think of in this list, it might be Tiptree. Yes. Yeah. But... Um, but but all of these dealt with the question of what it means to be human in the yes. sense that you're uh, that you're talking about, which is a different kind of question than you would ask of a Heinlein story or an Arthur Clarke story or an Asimov story. It's true. I mean, for for a long time, the default answer to the best science fiction story was Asimov's Nightfall. Sure. I think on all or, kinds of rules and events. Or Clarke's so, uh, is based
0: on. Really bad ideas. <laughs> See, at one point I might have said uh, 9 Billion Names Have Gone. No, well, yeah. 9 Billion Names Have Gone is based on a bad idea. Of course it is. A fantasy idea almost. Anyway. Gary, hour and 20. I'm going to wind it up. Okay. It's down. been a good one, though. It's been fun. Fun.
1: Well, that's what our um, listeners say on Twitter. Let's hear your own suggestions for the best
0: novel and the best story. Please do. Uh, please consider tweeting at us because we love hearing from you. Consider going to uh, either of the two websites that uh, have uh, Cood Street stuff on it, at, at us at Podbean, Jonathan at Podbean, or, Jonathan, uh, or uh, jonathanstrand at com.au because we've been too cheap to buy a Cood Street URL, which we should do, Gary. We should do that. We should do that. Maybe that'll be a New Year thing. That could be a good hey, thing. Hey, for 2013, I'll, I'll put up a dollar or two. You just make me carry everything, Gary. Um, Twenty dollars. Twenty dollars. Um, so yes, we, we, we could have our own URL. <laughs> With that in mind, it's been great talking to you.
1: It's been great talking to you as usual, and I will look forward to next week. And sooner or later, we're going to get one of these many elusive guests we that shall. we've been talking to.
0: But for for now, we are, as ever, the Mullers of Crude Street. Good night. of Coot Street. Good night.